This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The uh, Ontario Society of Professional Engineers uh, says that Ontario has lost between $732 million and $1.25 billion over the past two years selling clean electricity outside the province. Uh, then, of course, the Energy Minister, Glenn Tebow, will come back and say, well, wait a sec, uh, we've actually made somewhere around $300 million selling this stuff. But, yeah, if it's costing us $1.25 billion, where's the savings? Uh, let's bring in Parker Glant, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. He is with us now. Parker, thanks for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure again, Scott. Uh, how, how will this information resonate? Does this say anything that hasn't already been said? Uh, no, not really. I think, uh, you know, there's been uh, several people that have come out and sort of said, uh, we're losing money on our exports. So it just sort of confirms it. I mean, the other thing that OPSU has done is they've sort of focused on only clean energy. If you read their report, it says they exported 14.6 terawatts of clean energy, meaning hydro, wind, and solar, presumably, and nuclear, because mm-hmm. those are non-emitting sources of uh, generation. So, meaning what? That this... Meaning that they left out 7.2 terawatt hours of other exports, which would obviously be gas, because, you know, that's the only fossil fuel that we've got now that generates any uh, emissions. So explain to us once again why this is why this is happening, Parker, and why we have excess uh, power that we're giving away. Well, I mean, we you know we've signed a lot of contracts in the province for um, intermittent and non-reliable wind and solar. I mean, you know, we can sort of try to predict how much power generation will be produced by them, but. Uh, you know, it's it's like your weather report. Sometimes it's uh, right on the on the button, and other times it's way off. So I I mean that's basically, you know, what they have to do is forecast how much wind will produce in uh, you know in 24 hours. And we all know that uh, you know we can't always call the weather right. So if we can't call the weather right, we're not going to get the forecast for how much wind is going to be there or how much um, solar uh, is going to produce as well. I mean, you know, we get clouds, all of a sudden the clouds stop the power from being generated in solar panels, and if the wind gusts, then we get more uh, power than, you know, they might have, uh, you know, uh, forecasted. And that's dangerous for the grid because we could have power outages, you know, blackouts or brownouts. So they have to adjust these things, and the way they adjust them is either stop them from running in other words, curtail wind, uh, or uh, in uh, the case of uh, you know exports, find somebody that wants to buy our exports because we don't need them right now. We got to get rid of them, otherwise the grid might uh, be fried. So that's what they do, and you know well, they're, they so we have so we have grid pretty well, but so you know. we have excess power. But the problem is this power we paid a lot of money to generate it. We do, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, unroofed uh, solar can generate as much as eight, uh, eight, 80 cents a kilowatt hour, which is ridiculous. 
And, you know, wind produces at, you know, 13 and a half cents a kilowatt hour. And that's the cost of running these facilities. That's the cost we pay, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if we curtail it, as an example, curtailed wind, we still pay them 120 bucks a megawatt hour or 12 cents a kilowatt hour. So, you know, just looking at 2016, one thing that the absolute report doesn't mention at all is that we curtailed a lot of wind over... Uh, two megawatts, and we paid $260 million to the generators for not producing that power. Um, Should same thing is happening in in, uh, the current year. We've paid them out about $260 billion so far this year for the first nine months. And likewise, we're spilling water. We're, We're running water over the falls instead of running it through the turbines. And when that happens, we pay OPG, uh, who are the you know principal hydro producers in the province for spilling that water? What are the options for this excess power? We've got more power than what we need right now. Uh, we're paying way too much for it. What are the options for this excess power? Well, the problem is, is there's no options because we've given them long-term contracts. So we've basically guaranteed wind and solar first to the grid rights. So they rank ahead of hydro. They rank ahead of nuclear, right? So we have to take their power first, hmm. and everybody else is sort of, you know, falls away. And, uh, you know, and we've got the gas plants that, you know, that, uh, as I said, uh, the gas exports weren't mentioned or included in that estimate that OPSU produced. Uh, but, you know, they're, the only reason we've got them is to support, you know, wind and solar, because... When the wind doesn't blow, we're not going to get any power from that. So they fire up the the gas generators to produce that power because we might need it, you know, for industry and to, to heat our homes and so on. Uh, some are saying that they should be offering that at a discount to uh, Ontarians, but how can that? How would that work? Well, uh, I mean, they're going to have to. You know, my view is that they have to change the time of use rates or you know, if they've got all these apps now that you can access that tell you, you know, you can in general, you can take power now, you can run your, you know, your uh, washer and dryer now because it's going to be cheap. And if that uh, happens, I think people would take advantage of that. So that would use up some of the excess. But at the present time, the time of use rates don't allow anybody to do that. So there has to be some some way that uh, that can be exploited, and we can stop, you know, exporting it and give, basically giving it away for cents on the dollar. Uh, why would we not just give it back to Ontarians? Well, that's what I'm saying is yeah. that if, if we if we somehow can, uh, you know, produce, you know, uh, an app that people can get a message, as an example, from IESO or from their local distribution company. Electra, in your case, um, that says, hey, for the next three hours, we're going to have really cheap power. Really? Yeah. And then so people <laughs> could then, as I said, turn on their dishwasher or, you know, wash their clothes or dry their clothes and know that the power they were using would be, you know, two cents a kilowatt hour or three cents a kilowatt hour. That would, you know, go a long way to reducing, as an example, energy poverty, you know, which has been growing like 
you know, crazy in this province. Why would we not do that? What's the reasons for not do, reasons for not doing it? Well, it may be, you know, uh, related to the the ability of the smart meters to be able to recognize and uh, be changed at a particular point in time. Hmm. And I don't know whether or not we've got the, uh, you know, the ability to do that. It's, it may require, you know, some expenditures to, to develop programs that will make those uh, smart meters be able to adjust as they program them from, you know, from whoever they're hooked into. So really what we're doing is subsidizing electricity to the states where a lot of the manufacturing jobs have gone. Oh, yes, we're doing a great job on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the actual rates in Michigan and New York have fallen for the past couple of years. And, and I suspect part of the reason is because we're providing them with such cheap power. Uh, you know, so you know, their rates are going down while ours are going up. Why would uh, they not charge Michigan and New York more for this power? Or is, if, it, if they charge any more, it's, it's, well, it's not attractive? It's related to the global adjustment. Yeah. The global adjustment is very much an Ontario-created uh, thing. The global adjustment basically says uh, you're going to be paid, as an example, the wind turbine companies, 13.5 cents a kilowatt hour for whatever you produce. But if the market, in other words, there is a market where the electricity is traded, the HOEP, Hourly Ontario Energy Price is what it's referred to, if that HOEP is at $0.03, cents, in other words, nobody's really you know, interested in buying yeah. that surplus power and paying more than it costs to generate, uh, the difference between that $0.13.5 and the $0.03 cents goes into the global adjustment. Mm. And for that reason, the global adjustment can't be charged to those buyers. And if, they, if, it, if, if it can't be charged, you know, I've wondered personally why U.S. generators, power generators, aren't challenging this under NAFTA, which they could do yeah. if they wanted to, but they haven't yet. Um, but you know, we're basically subsidizing, you know, the ratepayers of Ontario are basically subsidizing those exports which could be construed by, you know, U.S. generators as, as being against market rules under the North American Free Trade Agreement. So is the biggest benefactor of Wins, of Wins Green Energy Act Michigan and New York State? Yeah, those are the two that get almost 80, I think it's about 80 to 85 percent of all of our exports. Go to so why would any province follow Ontario's lead if they can just get stuff from them? I mean, why would Michigan or uh, Michigan or New York State even be interested in, in rejigging their systems if they can just buy uh, clean, green stuff from, from Canada? Well, um, New York's demands are about equal to what Ontario's demands are. Michigan doesn't consume nearly quite as much. And don't forget, they have access to other generators through the grid connections they have with, with other states and with other power generators. So they can buy from other parties as well. And U.S. rates are traditionally, you know, uh, going, as I said, have been going down. U.S. rates have been going down. And therefore, you know, the, the markets that they operate in, they can possibly buy cheaper power from, as an example, Pennsylvania or Ohio or some other, uh, some other state. Why didn't we look at buying power from other states instead, or provinces instead of doing this? For example, we, we're right next door to Quebec, who've got lots. 
Well, I mean, in the case of Quebec, it, uh, some of it at the time, if you go back, you know, 10 years, we had very limited sort of grid connections between uh, our two provinces. Um, you know, now they've been expanded some, so we are actually importing from Quebec and we're exporting. There's an agreement in place that uh, allows us to do that. Uh, we could have explored that, but of course, there always is that sort of friction between Ontario and Quebec, you know, that we don't want to be seen having to be dependent on Quebec uh, for our power. And in the case of Quebec, they're very much focused on, they were very much focused on selling their power, their surplus power, into the U.S. market. And they still are. They're selling a lot of their power into, you know, uh, states that are directly south of them and hooked up with the same grid. And they're trying to expand that as well and trying to generate long-term contracts. And, you know, so a lot of their surplus power is already committed. The other thing about Quebec is it, its peak demand period is actually in the wintertime. Mm. So it couldn't supply us. It can supply us in the summer pretty well, right. but it can't supply us very well in the winter because a lot of Quebec homes are heated elect- with electricity because the rates are so cheap there, you know, the gas is not nearly as popular in Quebec as it is in, you know, gas for heating is not nearly as popular in Quebec as it is here in Ontario. Uh, the, uh, the OSPE's past president and chair said excess clean energy should be offered to Ontario businesses and residents at, a, at that lower wholesale cost, but that's not going to work either, is it? Well, yeah, no, it, but it'll reduce our losses, if you will. It will allow us to reduce the cost of our electricity if we can use that surplus ourselves instead of, you know, basically giving it away. Right. Um, but so that it, doesn't pay the providers. No, it doesn't pay the providers, but it does reduce, if you will, our electricity bill. So if you use, uh, you know, a 1,000 kilowatts a, a month, and you can get some of that 1,000 kilowatts at a cheaper price, you might even use 1,200 kilowatts during the month because you're getting at such a cheap price. So that's an issue that, that I think has to be explored more, and one that the government sort of says, or the energy minister says, they're now experimenting with different time-of-use rates in, uh, you know, in a few different locations in the province. So we may see some evolvement as to, you know, changing the time of use rates, which might say, you know, give seniors the ability to uh, to use power during the day at a cheaper rate. But if you're home all day, you know, you're paying peak rates. So, you know, they're looking at that sort mm-hmm. of spread, but at the same time, they should hopefully be looking at what Opsu has suggested, which is, you know, how about giving us the opportunity to use some of that cheap, cheap power? Uh, when they started down this road, did they anticipate having to sell excess power? I really don't believe they did because, you know, the environmentalists, I think, and the people that were, you know, uh, in the business in Europe in particular of, you know, uh, putting up wind turbines and solar panels uh, game rushing over to Canada and Ontario in particular, and trying to convince us that you know what they were doing in Europe uh, was something that was wonderful, and we should have it here. And the politicians bought that without doing a cost-benefit study. And the Auditor General said that as well. And and uh, his report way back when, when McCarter was the Auditor General of Ontario, 
and, uh, and Bonnie Lissick has uh, since said it as well, that, you know, no cost-benefit studies were done. So without a cost-benefit study and without, you know, without experts looking at this, uh, experts as an example from APSU, um, the politicians decided they know better. And, you know, they said, oh, we got to have lots of wind and lots of solar, and we're going to pay exorbitant prices for it without looking at the circumstances that might be created. Uh, Ten years ago when all this started and, and there was all chatter about it, everybody kept pointing to Europe. Where are they on all this now? Well, <laughs> Germany's in a bit of a mess uh, right now in terms of their, you know, their sort of Green Energy Act, um, inner waste or whatever it's called. And, uh, you know, they're basically depending on coal to continue to supply them. They're actually building quite a number of, of coal plants to generate power because they're closing up their nuclear plants. And uh, right now, uh, you know, Germany is going through, a, if you will, a governing stage because the coalition has just disbanded, I think. And uh, the president of Germany has said, we're not going to call a new election. You guys all have to get together and see if you can form the party. Hmm. Uh, Denmark is, is stopped uh, putting wind turbines up on land. They're only saying you can only put up wind turbines now offshore. So, I mean, there's changes coming all through the, through the uh, European uh, places as well. I mean, France is, depends on nuclear power for about 75% of its needs. Uh, but with the new president, they're looking at, oh, more wind and, and maybe some solar. Uh, but you know they are, they're going to probably be more hesitant to sort of rush it than than we were or Germany was and not rush into it. So you know they're going through uh, some stages as well over there of saying, oh, we may have made a big mistake. What is the future of nuclear? Uh, well, I'm surprised that you know uh, we've got so many controls on nuclear that it makes it really difficult to you know, get through, just like we've seen with pipelines, as an example, in this country. There's so many requirements now for, you know, safety reasons on on nuclear plants that it's, you know, it takes, you know, almost a decade to get one through the whole system to get it approved and blessed by the various parties. And and then, you know, to build it is another, you know, uh, long term as well. And the regulations change as you're building it, so it might change the structure of the building. But uh, my view is that nuclear is, the, you know, is a, a very clean way of, of uh, generating electricity. And it's surprising that we're not doing more uh, building of, of nuclear plants. Parker Galland has been with us, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. According to the Ontario Society of Professional Engineers, Ontario has lost between $732 million and $1.25 billion over the past two years selling excess clean electricity outside the province. Well, we pay through the roof. Parker, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. All right. Thank you, Scott, for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. 
Bill 148 passing in the Ontario legislature today. Of course, minimum wage is going up. Also, a minimum of 10 days of personal emergency leave, including at least uh, two paid sick days, uh, requiring employers to pay part-time temporary and casual workers at the same rate as full-time staff if they're doing the same job. Uh, Force employers to pay three hours of wages for cancelling workers' shifts less than 48 hours in advance and make it easier for unions to organize in such uh, sectors as temporary help agencies and building maintenance. To talk more about all of this and joining us a little bit later will be Kevin Flynn, Minister of Labour for the Ontario Government. First, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University, Marvin Ryder is with us now. Marvin, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. So you've got two sides of this debate. Both are pretty hot. Uh, Some say that this is needed. Others say that this is going to drive jobs uh, out of the province or at least stop us from uh, producing more. When, When and how will we know the effects of all of this? Oh, good question. So I think we're going to know fairly quickly, perhaps at the end of the first quarter, and certainly no later than the end of the second quarter of 2018, if some of the most dire predictions are coming true. Now, most of these relate to the increase in the minimum wage, and so tied to that, people have been saying, well, you know, I'm going to have to let some people go. I won't be able to keep the same number of unemployed, or same number of people employed in my organization. So we'll know by, by the end of the second quarter for sure of next year if there are some job losses going on and to what extent they're going on. Now, the flip side of this is the second quarter, June of next year, that we have the provincial election. And you can see very clearly the gamble of this provincial government. Uh, if those 1.5 million Ontarians who today earn less than $15 an hour see an impact on their pocketbook and they don't see either their hours reduced or their jobs reduced, then the hope is that those people will turn into votes at the poll. I don't want to say it's strictly a, ca- a tax grab or a cash grab for for votes here, but I think there's a great connection here. There's enough people who don't like the Liberals after nearly 14 years in power. Can they buy their way out of some of this? Now, I do think on another front it's the right thing to do. We've been talking about a living wage and a fair wage, and it's been taking a long time to come. Most people who argue against this, their biggest argument is just the speed of it. We're not really against trying to do these things, but you're making it happen too quickly. Uh, We'll again see how they react as this becomes a reality. $14 an hour as of January 1st. Uh, lots have talked about they're not in. Uh, they're not disagreeing with the idea of raising uh, the minimum wage, as you mentioned. Just the speed in which it's done. Is there a good speed to do this? <laughs> you know, this reminds me of peeling a bandage off. You, you like it yeah. ripped off quickly or a little bit at a time? Exactly. Uh, the conservatives in their front have said, if you elect us next year, the move from fourteen to fifteen will be phased in over four years. That represents an annual increase of around one point five percent. Really, nothing more. Than than the rate of inflation, poverty advocates would tell you that then how are you eating into poverty if you're simply giving people anything with the with keeping up with the cost of inflation? Uh, those people who believe that we want to deal something with all the 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 poorer people out there, people who are working poor, they're working 40 hours a week but they can't get ahead. This is a way to do this now. Let's do the other side for a second. Who are the people against this? Well, many small business people and many rural people. One clause in this bill that had people concerned was this one about paying people for canceled work. It had a big impact on volunteer firefighters. Now, Hamilton proper doesn't use a lot of volunteers, but if you're in a smaller community, you have all kinds of volunteers, and if you suddenly had to pay them for being on call every day, my gosh, your taxes were going to go up hugely. So in the between the second reading and the third reading of this bill, some of this language got changed to be 
more sensitive to the situation in the rural side of the province. Still, 25% of people live there. Uh, but I, I think those people who are only concerned is, again, the size of the change. In no previous increase of the minimum wage have we ever seen massive uh, unemployment or have we ever seen any massive economic impacts. The one thing, again, that no one's really thinking about here is, although it's going to cost those businesses more, there's also going to be more money in the poorest people's pockets. We don't think they're going to use that extra money to top up RRSPs or TFSAs. We think they're going to spend it. So although it may cost you a little something, you may actually have more people now able to afford your product, whether that's a restaurant meal or an appliance or a dress, and come into your shop and spend uh, if you slow this rate down, do you end up creating more of a problem? In other words, is it ever enough? Right. And so I, I get that question, and I think we have to remember that for much of the previous much of the previous 20 years, our minimum wage wasn't moving. It was simply frozen, and everyone thought that was a great idea because it kept costs low. But then it caused a gap thanks to inflation. Inflation keeps marching, and if you don't raise the wages for five years, although on one hand, look how low the cost is for business, you're actually now creating poverty at that other level. So the real trick to minimum wage, I think, is to raise it now that if it's at the right level, keep raising at the rate of inflation rather than thinking that freezes are the solution to the whole problem. So after, uh, let's say that uh, that Premier Wynne continues and is reelected, yep. and this all goes through, will, be, will this be the last discussion we have on minimum wage? <laughs> well, I doubt it. I doubt it. So Even if it goes up with inflation? Yeah, I, I think, again, I think there will be people who will always say, let's say we have a recession again. We have the type of recession we saw in 2007-8. Businesses are talking about laying people off. So, look, Premier Wynn, if you would just stop increasing minimum wage this year, maybe I could keep more people employed. Or maybe, again, just pause because, look, the economy is not strong enough. One of, of the government's arguments, and I'm sure Minister Flynn's going to make it, is that the Ontario economy is actually doing very well. If now is not the right time to do this, just when it is. But it will not always be doing well. And at some point, and I don't know if it'll be two years from now or five years or eight years from now, but at some point we'll be back in a recession. And I'm sure this question about ticking the minimum wage up again, that will rise itself and we'll have that discussion all over again. By raising the minimum wage, and, you know, again, we've had this debate about what the definition of minimum wage is and how that's changing in this new world. Is this admitting that good-paying jobs are scarce? Is this admitting that we have to lower, uh, we have to raise the bottom as opposed to uh, creating good jobs? I'm not sure I'd say that the jobs are scarce, but that there is this thing called income disparity, that it seems that those people who have really good jobs they have been getting pay raises and other things that have continued to, to accumulate to them, and they're doing better and better. Our problem is that the bottom end has not been keeping up. So there are really only two ways to deal with income inequality. You either tax the rich and give it to the poor that way, or you sort of freeze the increases for the top and you bring the bottom up. And I think Kathleen Wynne and her government have said, we're going to try that approach. We've tried some other approaches of transferring wealth. That doesn't seem to have helped. So let's now try to slow down the top and bring up the bottom. And in a significant way, this increase on January 1st uh, of this year is, is almost a 20% increase in the minimum wage. That's well above inflation. So no one who's, what we'll say, truly middle class or upper class should be getting a 20% increase this year. So this is really an attempt to bring the bottom closer to the top that way. Is this technological revolution we're going through now as big as the Industrial Revolution? 
or even bigger. You know, what what are you going to be paid to do in the future? Now, I don't want to suggest that Star Trek is any model of the future, but the theory in the Star Trek world of three or four hundred years from now is that nobody really works. You you use your time and pursue whatever it is you like to do. Nobody on uh, the USS Enterprise ever complained about a paycheck being late or lost or not getting deposited. No one ever seemed to buy anything. There weren't even dollars out there. If you think that is the way the future is going to look, then this is a transition towards it. I, I do think in the future, and then Scott, if we're talking again about uh, things like minimum wage, probably in the next three to five years, we're going to have a discussion about the work week. Should it be a 40-hour work week? Should it be a 30-hour week, mm. week, work week? Maybe it should be 24 hours. Sweden has already opened the door to talk about a 24-hour work week. Um, and I think we're going to hear a little bit about this if we want to keep some level of full employment. As you know, uh, if you're under the age of 30, the unemployment rate is much higher than the general population, in part because nice people like me, the baby boomers, aren't retiring and making way for that younger generation. So here's the other way to do it. We'll, we'll keep people employed, but they just won't work as many hours. I remember reading stuff in the 80s, though, Marvin, that said with technology, uh, we'll all have four-day weeks. Well, you know, life will be much easier. But really, all they did was fire the guy next to you and give you his responsibility, too, to keep you working five days. Will this be the catalyst that actually gets us to a four-day week, or is it just another day and a cheaper price to work harder? Yeah, and so again, most of these jobs that we're talking about, the jobs that are going to benefit from the minimum wage increase, aren't those kind of jobs that technology has been replacing. Uh, Some of these people are not being able to take advantage of this. It it is an interesting question. How do you move society, and what is government's role in moving society versus, say, the business community's role in moving society? Uh, You know, we we all have an EMBA, an executive MBA program here, which is taught in for one of the terms in Northern California. And when students visit the headquarters of Google or Facebook and they see the working conditions there and compare them to any other employer out there, they are amazed. They all want that. What do I mean by that? Well, your employer provides a barista who makes your special latte for you. They have on-site massage services. Uh, if you want to work from 1 until 9 p.m. at night, go ahead. There's no fixed hours. Work whenever you want to. You want to telecommute, you can do that. So some of the most advanced companies have already changed the workplace dramatically. The question is, is that simply because they're a technology company, or can we see similar advances to other kinds of companies in the workplace? These are the challenges. I don't know how you do this in a hospital. I think hospitals have to run 7 by 24. No matter how much technology you have, you've still got to have that 24-hour service. So I don't know if it's possible to talk about those workweek changes. Uh, But if a retailer, if a certain amount of this is being done online, maybe you don't have as many physical stores, maybe there's a way to deal with that. So how much is this the government leading versus the business sector? We're going to have to watch and see. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Let's bring in uh, Kevin Flynn, Minister of Labor for the Ontario government, and is with us now. Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure, Scott. It's great to be on the air in Hamilton today. So Bill 148 has passed. It passed, um few hours ago. Give us the highlight. work to get it there. It's uh, about two and a half years to get it there. What it involves, obviously, is um, an increase in the minimum wage January uh, 1st of 2018. We'll be going to $14 an hour. A year later, January 1st, 2019, we'll be going to $15 an hour. 
personal emergency leave. Right now, only some people in the province of Ontario get personal emergency leave for those things that come up. Your child is sick. Uh, could be a death in the family. could be something you've got to do very important from a legal perspective. Just those ordinary things that people need some time off now and then for. That's going to be available to everybody in the province of Ontario now, regardless of the size of your company. And two of those days will be paid find the people that have personal um, emergency leave, if they have 10, they tend to use about five and a half. So it's not something that's abused. If you find yourself in a part-time or if you're working for um, a temporary help agency, uh, you're entitled now to get paid uh, equally to full-time employees that are doing the same job. Uh, we don't treat ourselves really well in the province of Ontario when it comes to taking a break now and then. So the average, uh, we, we just want to bring ourselves to the average in Canada, which is uh, three weeks after five years. Currently, it's two. And what people have said to me, they've said, Kevin, you can write all the rules you want to make sure that workplaces are places of respect and dignity. But if you don't hire some more employment standards officers, it all goes for naught. If there's nobody out there policing to make sure that everybody's playing by the rules, uh, that there'll be a small percentage of the population or if our employers think that the rules don't apply to them. The vast majority of employers in the province of Ontario, though, are excellent places to work. Uh, Kevin, uh, many would agree with the minimum wage increase. Lots say it's too fast. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, I, I just can't. After what I know now, uh, Scott, after spending uh, two and a half years with the special advisors going around the province of Ontario, I had no idea, I'll be brutally honest, I had no idea that about a third of people in Ontario make less than $15 an hour. About half of those people are between the ages of 25 and 64. That's the years you're trying to raise. Uh, you're trying to raise a family, you're having children, you're buying clothes, you're buying diapers, you're buying food, paying rent, all the normal things that families just want to do. I'd want it for you. I hope you'd, you'd want it for me. You don't do that in Ontario on um, $11.60 an hour. It's just not a living wage anymore. What do you say to those that say minimum wage was not designed to be a living wage? Minimum wage was designed to be starter jobs and, and positions that people move on to from there? Probably some truth to that, Scott, somewhere in the past. And that's what I said. I think we all thought of the minimum wage is that job you got when you were still in high school, you wanted to buy a new bike, or when you got to university, maybe it was beer money, or you know, you wanted to put a few bucks in and buy yourself a cheap little car or something like that. Those days are long gone. It's an increasing, like I said, about a third of us are making under $15 an hour. About 10% of us are making the exact minimum wage, whatever it is, eleven forty, eleven sixty. And it's just not enough to get by. If it was if it was students, and that's why we kept a student wage here, Scott. We didn't get rid of the student wage, even though we were advised to by the advisors, because we believe there is a role for that wage when somebody's learning what it means to be on time, what it means to keep your uniform clean, what it means to be part of a team. I think parents want that for the kids. And uh, I think by allowing for a student wage, we encourage employers to give kids a chance to prove what they can do. But we shouldn't pretend for a minute that you can you can raise a family on the on that wage, and that's become the reality for many Ontario workers. And it, it's at a time, Scott, when how do Ontario we change how do, how do we change that, Kevin? I mean, how does that become the norm for how does that become the norm for Canadian workers? I mean, where are the other jobs? Where are the jobs at the other end of the spectrum? Oh, well, that's what I was going to say, Scott. The Ontario economy is doing very, very well. The Ontario economy is leading the G7 in uh, economic So growth. why can't these people get out of minimum wage jobs and into uh, other jobs that will can promote them and, and offer them a future? 
Well, I mean, there's a demand for people in these jobs. I have people that are calling me saying they can't find people to fulfill these jobs, certainly in my own community of Oakville. I've had calls uh, from uh, from restaurants, fast food places, and saying, Kevin, it's not the minimum wage. I can't find anybody to do this work anymore. So that's something we're going to have to face up to. But it doesn't take away from the fact that people move to this province for a reason. They move from all four corners of the world because it's always been a place of opportunity. I did as a, as a young immigrant kid. Um, but if you're putting in 35 or 40 hours a week, surely... Uh, the employment standards of the jurisdiction would, you know, would say to you, okay, 35, 40 hours a week, you get the basics at least. You get to pay rent. You get to do all those ordinary things. Hey, we Ontario is a place where people, I think, if they work hard, can uh, you know, can strive to move ahead. Often they come from jurisdictions where they have. Do those people, though, Kevin? Though, do those people on minimum wage do they have a way to get ahead? Because it sounds like what we're trying to do is provide a life for them at minimum wage. So, are we actually trying to help them get off minimum wage and to something that is more substantive and a future? Well, yes, absolutely. We've got careers like the Second Career Program, for example, for those people that find themselves displaced. Sometimes the only option would be go to you know to go from a fairly well-paying job. Uh, to go into something in the minimum wage range, we offer people retraining. We often, certainly, we we offer uh, skills training on a regular basis. We need skilled tradespeople uh, in the province of Ontario. The nuclear refurbishment plan we have at the uh, nuclear plants is 25 years of work. They're crying for tradespeople. They want young people to go into the trades. So there's no shortage of well-paying skilled work in the province of Ontario. Some people just aren't there yet. Some people have moved from another country. They're starting off in this country. They do the minimum wage job until they can uh, they can upgrade their credentials or their education, until they uh, maybe get a better command of the English language. All sorts of things that lead to employment. Uh, but we, you know, the reality is about 30% of the population in the province makes less than $15 an hour, and that's not enough to get by in the province. Uh, will be this be, if your government continues and is re-elected, will this be the last discussion on minimum wage? Oh, I don't think so. I think with artificial intelligence and, uh, you know, the... The workplace is changing. That's how this all started, Scott. It's, uh, there's parts of it that is very exciting. If you think of the workplace that I would have gone into in a young man, or if you think of the workplace of the 1990s where we last looked at employment standards and labor relations, and you look at it in 2017, very different places. I mean, I expected I'd get a permanent job, be a full-time job, maybe some benefits, and probably a pension. That's not the reality uh, for young people that are entering the workforce today. Very, see an awful lot of temporary help agencies, a proliferation of that where somebody takes a little piece of your paycheck, those types of things, contract work, temporary work. So what we're trying to do is make sure that the Employment Standards Act and the Labor Relations Act uh, are really keeping pace with the changes that are taking place in society. But that that's... Uh, you know, the workplaces of the future, I know, will be very, very different than they are today. And the pace of change, it's not just the change itself. It's how quickly that change is taking place. Last time we looked at these acts, 25 years ago. Uh, we can't go another 25 years without looking at these acts again. I'd be surprised if we weren't looking at them again in three or four years. Kevin Flynn has been with us, Minister of Labor for the Ontario government. Uh, Bill 148 passing today, January 1. The minimum wage rises to $14 an hour. Kevin, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. 
The head of the FCC in the United States, that's the equivalent of the CRTC here, plans to unveil uh, plans to scrap the Obama-era net neutrality rules, which were created to ensure a free and open Internet. To talk more about all of this, Laura Tribe is with us, Executive Director, Open Media, and on the line with us now. Laura, thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. First of all, Laura, explain to everybody what net neutrality is. That's a big question right now, isn't it? (laughs) So net neutrality is the principle and the rules that ensure that all content on the Internet is treated the same. So companies can't charge you more for video over audio, and whatever website you try and load should load at the same speed, no matter what the content or the type of it or the politics of it. Is this more about speed or content? It's actually about both. So what is happening in the United States right now is the uh, FCC is looking to repeal the rules that protect net neutrality and make it up for grabs. So companies will have the ability to censor content they don't like. They can block content that competes with their own content. They can throttle the competition. And then they can also charge more for increased speeds for content delivery. So why is uh, net neutrality important? Why is it something that everyone should have? So net neutrality is critical for the Internet as we know it. And that sounds dramatic, but it's true. The ability to open up your computer or log on using your phone and open any website and know that it will load at the same speed is what we love. It's the ability to access different types of content and information. And what we're really seeing at risk in the U.S. is the ability to access all of that at once. And we're looking at the potential for packages that let you only subscribe to certain types of content. So maybe you don't have the social media package and you have to also add that on to access social media channels. Or you don't have the video package and you have to add that on to stream video. Sounds like I'm buying cable. It does sound like you're buying cable, and that's the problem. People are cutting the cord and moving to the Internet because they love the freedom that it has and they love the options available with it. And turning the Internet into cable 2.0 is just not the solution. Is this industry looking for control? It definitely is industry looking for control. And in particular, we're seeing Comcast and Verizon, some of the biggest media companies in the U.S. who provide Internet service, really trying to find ways to charge more and to protect their own content and block out the competition. How long can we keep control? Well, right now in Canada, we're actually pretty lucky. We have really strong protections that mean that companies can't prioritize certain content or charge more or less for different types of content. Um, And I think we're really hoping that that can stay and be maintained. And in the U.S., uh, you know, it's not looking like things are heading in that direction based on what the FCC is looking for, but we're seeing really strong pushback. We had over 100,000 calls made to Congress just yesterday alone on this issue, took over the front page of Reddit. And I think it's been really encouraging to see how when people realize how this impacts them, they are pushing back and they're demanding that the Internet stays the way that we like it. Talk a little bit more about that. Uh, what will happen if, if things go the way the FCC wants them? How will that affect the average Internet user? So in the U.S., it will mean that you have to potentially buy different bundles of service for different types of content, just like cable. Uh, It means that for companies that are trying to compete, if you don't have the same money as the biggest competitor in your industry, you probably can't afford to keep up. Uh, It means that as the bigger companies, you're still going to be expected to pay that money. Uh, And so things like Netflix, for example, if they want to pay to have high-speed delivery of their video, they're going to have to pay more. And those costs are going to be passed on to consumers. Uh, So we're going to see increases in prices. We're going to see uh, some content censored and blocked. 
potentially. Uh, and we're also going to see that it's really hard for small companies to keep up, uh, Canadian companies and U.S. companies, who are just trying to compete with other industries with innovation and new ideas. And uh, it's going to make it really hard. Uh is it naive to think that we can continue uh, with the Wild West mentality and not control this in some way? So what we're actually seeing in the U.S. is they're trying to implement a Wild West mentality. Uh, the rules that were put into place are actually to protect consumers and to make sure that as customers, you know, we are able to be in control. And if we are able to stop this, it means that we can keep that. And if we're not, then I think we're actually moving to a even greater uh, Wild West mentality of really free reign over what people are able to do, uh, which will eke out all the little guys. Do you think this is? Uh, do you think this is internet seeing what happened to traditional media and trying to control it more? Definitely, I think we're really seeing people cutting the cord and moving to the internet, and big cable companies trying to turn the internet back into cable, yeah. as opposed to trying to really embrace what the internet is. Uh, how do you convince these companies to embrace what the internet is? Well, we're working on that, and we're actually seeing some similar uh, conversations happening here in Canada as we're trying to figure out what does Canadian content look like and how do we protect our own content and culture. And I think the biggest thing is to make sure that they really recognize that the competition is in the favor of their consumers. Uh, but I think for the biggest companies, they're really driven by profit, and it's not about convincing them because that's not their motivation. And so from their perspective, they will take everything they can do to find ways to increase the bottom line. And it's our job to make sure that those that are regulating it are protecting our interests. Do you think this is going to fly in the U.S.? It'll be very interesting to see. So the vote at the FCC is on December 14th, uh, but we've seen a pretty incredible backlash, and Congress has the ability to step in and intervene. Uh, and we're also able to see what happens at the vote at the FCC itself. So we're going to stay tuned. And no matter what happens, we're going to keep fighting for this because it impacts us here in Canada as well. Do you think uh, from a political standpoint down south, this is about the internet or it's about undoing everything Obama ever did? Well, I think that's part of the problem is this has become a really partisan issue. And it's actually not. Uh, when these rules were put into place a few years ago, it was across the political spectrum, something that people were asking for. And we're seeing a lot of people on both sides of the political spectrum now really concerned. But from the FCC's perspective, this really is about undoing Obama-era regulations, as opposed to recognizing that this is something that actually Republicans have really argued for as well. How has the rest of the world dealt with net neutrality? It varies from country to country, and it's really interesting to see. And I think part of the reason that people are really scared right now is that the U.S., was a guiding light in terms of net neutrality and really making sure that that was the principle that started everyone else's policies. Uh, we've seen some great movement in India around net neutrality. This year in Canada, we had a really big win around net neutrality. But in countries like Portugal, uh, you know, you really do have to pay to play and pick how, what you're going to access and what you're going to give up. When people who have been paying cable bills for decades uh, hear this, do you think they're going to react negatively to it, towards it? Or do you think that, you know, because the game has just changed so much, they don't want that sort of model infiltrating the one they currently have? Well, I think that being mad about your cable bill doesn't mean you should be okay with also being mad about your internet bill. Uh, I think that it's actually really relatable. And the people that we've seen that are the most frustrated are actually those who are still on cable uh, and are frustrated with what's happening there and don't want to see this extended to the Internet as well. 
Uh, we've heard many, especially recently, talk about uh, the flow of fake news and obviously Facebook cracking down on things that uh, ha- have thrown up red flags for them. Uh, with net neutrality, do we have more control over this sort of thing or less? Well, it's putting the control into the hands of the companies. Um, so it's not actually doing anything about across-the-board regulation or ensuring that there's fair principles put in place. It's really letting the companies decide what they like, what they don't like, and what they're going to block. And I think there's a lot of concern right now around fake news and political censorship. Uh, But I think this is really going to ultimately come down to competition, blocking your competitors, blocking political views that you don't like. Um, And there's a really big concern that this is going to be a new means of censorship that's outside of the hands of the government that they can't enforce. Hmm. Uh, What about Canada? Are we going to follow suit? Canada has pretty strong protections right now, and we've seen even today, uh, Minister Baines put out a tweet that he stands and supports uh, free expression and net neutrality in Canada, which is great. Um, Our Telecommunications Act, which is the rule that protects net neutrality and oversees the rules of the Internet in Canada, is actually up for review, though. And I think over the next year or two, as that goes under review and we look at what's coming forward, um, it is scary to think about, you know, we know the U.S. can have a big influence on Canada and our policies and our politics. And right now we have those protections, and we really hope that that's not something that we're looking to go the direction of in the U.S. in future. Laura Tribe has been with us, Executive Director, Open Media. Laura, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks so much. All right, let's bring in Daniel Lyons, Associate Professor at Boston College Law School. He is with us now. Daniel, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. How is this playing south of the border? How is this playing in the United States? How do they feel about net neutrality? Well, it is definitely creating a lot of... uh, excitement in the Twitter sphere is not all of it positive, I must say. So uh, is this going backwards or moving forward in your mind? So, uh, my, I mean, in a literal sense, it's going backward to uh, the law that governed the Internet prior to 2015, but in my mind, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, the FCC has pushed this uh, bill as essentially uh, restoring the uh, light-touch regulatory environment under which the Internet flourished from President Clinton's administration forward. Uh, so uh, more in favor than against, you would say? Oh, no, I think the, the um, sentiment, at least among those that I've been able to see, um, tend to be uh, running against the idea that uh, feeling net neutrality is a good idea. So why do you um, think regulation is a good idea here? So I'm actually not convinced the FCC is doing the wrong thing here. I think that um, the uh, decision by the Obama administration to... Uh, treat broadband providers under a a legal regime that was originally written to govern the old Bell telephone monopoly was probably doing more harm than good to innovation. Why? Uh, So the original idea behind uh, Title II, which is the legal scheme that was used to enact net neutrality, right, uh, created a whole series of um, regulatory obstacles and reporting requirements that are very expensive, particularly for smaller Internet service providers that uh, provide service in the rural parts of the country that uh, you know, Verizon and Comcast don't reach. Um, my concern uh, has uh, for a long time been that by trying to preserve uh, innovation or openness in the space for Internet content, you're actually limiting the opportunities for innovation by broadband providers themselves. Just to give you an example, um, a couple years ago, Sprint was interested in offering a... Um, uh, a wireless plan that gave you unlimited talk, text, and one social media app of your choice. 
Mm. And I thought this was fantastic. My teenage daughter blows through my data cap every month, and all she does is Instagram, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought if I could buy this for her, it's cheaper than a regular plan and not be a bad thing. But Sprint's counsel was concerned that it, this would be something that violates net neutrality mm-hmm. because by offering access to some social media and not others and not non-social media, right, you were promoting a non-net neutral environment. So that's the kind of experiments that I would hope would uh, companies would feel more open about engaging in uh, once the FCC repeals this rule. Uh, so this is sort of like cable bundling. Uh, so it might be or it might not be, right? Um, one of the interesting takeaways is that, the, that uh, net neutrality doesn't really affect the prices that get charged to you and me, the end user consumers, right? What this really is about is uh, whether uh, Internet content providers, the Netflixes and um, uh, YouTubes of the world, uh, might have to pay for uh, priority transport over uh, broadband providers' network, right? So it, it's essentially much more protecting um, yeah. content providers than right. it is, I think, cons- end-user consumers. But, Daniel, what you were talking about earlier uh, with the, the example of your daughter, I mean, that c- the, uh, lots of families can, can completely relate to that. Uh, and that sounds like a great idea, but that doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to throttle back you know, the speed it takes me to get from one place to another or uh, control certain sites once I do get on them. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely right. There are definitely um, anti-competitive risks that come from repealing this rule, right? Um, So can't we find something, can't we find a sweet spot in the middle where we can get the packages like you're talking about and, uh, and, and still not be worried that the content is going to be skewed or that, uh, or that your ability to get something, the, uh, the speed in which you get something is throttled back? Yeah, I think the answer is more robust antitrust law, right? So antitrust law uh, governs uh, every sector of the American economy, right? And its its goal is to do exactly what we're worried that Comcast or Verizon might do, right? Which is exploit market power in a way that gives a sister company an unfair benefit. My sense is the the right answer here is not uh, the heavy-handed FCC rules that are uh, being repealed, but instead having the Federal Trade Commission step up with its uh, antitrust authority. We've seen, su- somewhat surprisingly in the last week, the Trump administration antitrust uh, folk are stepping forward and saying they're interested in aggressively pursuing uh, uh, fighting anti-competitive conduct in this space with the blocking of the uh, AT&T Time Warner merger. So I think that's probably what the right answer going forward, because then if abusive acts actually happen, they get stamped out. But otherwise, you're allowing companies to continue to innovate in ways that might be good for consumers. Is this just another example of traditional media which is losing ground trying to control the Internet and turn it into Internet cable? So uh, there's definitely a change um, at issue within the traditional cable industry. You can see that even in the fact that they're renaming themselves. They used to be the uh, National Cable and Telecom Association, and now they're calling themselves NCTA, the Internet Group, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the cable companies recognize that the days of... uh, Traditional cable being a cash cow are limited. You're seeing more uh, competitive offerings online, and in fact, they're getting more money uh, going forward from broadband offerings than they are from cable. So uh, AT&T's uh, people said it, I think, best. They said, we're going to continue to uh, make what money we can from traditional pay offerings as that business goes into decline. But we want to make sure that we're, as consumers shift from uh, traditional cable and satellite to uh, online 
uh, video viewing. We want to make sure we're still active and playing in that space because that's what we do. We sell video. Is this going against the spirit of the Internet? I mean, how, uh, how will consumers see this as anything other than their cable company trying to control their Internet now? So I'm not actually sure that consumers are going to see um, any difference at all as a result of this decision, right? It's certainly not in the short run because most, if not all, Internet providers here in the States uh, have committed to operating net neutral principles as a matter of their terms of service. Uh, I think um, in the long run you might start to see a little more experimentation with different business models such as the Sprint model that I uh, saw in the, uh, explained a little bit earlier. But my sense is that overall um, the this is a much ado about nothing. I don't think we're going to see very much uh, change from the consumer's perspective as far as how the Internet is provided going forward. Uh, people have uh, said that the the uh, Internet is the Wild West at this point. Is it? Does it need more control? How will this uh, change the flow of fake news? So that's a really good question. Um, one of the big concerns that historically has animated the net neutrality debate, right, was the idea that because broadband providers control the last mile of of uh, connectivity between you and the Internet, they can shape what news you get and what news you don't get, right? So Comcast blocks, www.comcastsucks.org or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. That wouldn't be a great thing. Um, the one thing we've noticed in the last six months was that um, to the extent that that's a problem, it's not a problem unique to broadband providers. So after the big uh, white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, there was a uh, neo-Nazi website called the Daily Stormer that found itself uh, being suppressed. But it wasn't the broadband providers that were blocking their messages. It was first uh, GoDaddy, which deregistered its domain name, and then Google, which refused to provide hosting services. Um, and Cloudflare was blocking, uh, was uh, decided it was going to lift uh, protection against hackers. So it turns out that there's a number of potential pressure points in the Internet ecosystem that can guide uh, what you see and what you can't see. Uh, it's not a problem that's unique to broadband providers. And so I think it's a, the issue of shaping fake news and uh, distorting the flow of information online is something much bigger than the net neutrality debate has has seen so far. Do you think this will be a cut and dry decision, or do you think there'll be lots of debate around this before it happens? I think, well, there's, I, I think the next three weeks are going to be very, very busy. Um, and I think ultimately the decision is probably going to be along part, uh, party lines, a 3-2 decision. Um, and the, the decision on December 12th isn't going to be the end of the matter. Um, litigation, I think, is virtually guaranteed. Mm. The FCC, I think, is writing its order pretty airtightly to see if they can survive judicial challenge, but that judicial challenge will come. Daniel Lyons has been with his associate professor at Boston College Law School. Daniel, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.